All right, everybody, I invite you to take a seat. And if you bought a Bible with you, turn over to John chapter 8. If you didn't and you want to follow along, there should be one in the back of the pew in front of you. We are in John chapter 8. So for those of you visiting with us, we've been going through a long series in the Gospel of John. But I don't want you to worry if this is your first time joining us. Uh, we've got a text this morning that I think is relevant, whether you've studied John your entire life or this is the first time you've ever read in it. I think what we're going to talk about this morning has got something to say to you in your life. Uh, if you don't know, the Gospel of John is one of four books in our New Testament that we refer to as Gospels. These make up the first four books of our New Testament. And they are written either by eyewitnesses or they're compiled by men who compiled eyewitness accounts of the life and the ministry of Jesus. So they are biographies of sort, but they don't talk about everything in Jesus' life. They focus in on the roughly three-year period of his ministry where he was preaching about the kingdom of heaven. And they are biased in that they want to get you to conclude what they have concluded, which is that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the one that he said he was. And so we are in John's account. John was one of the 12 apostles, one of the men closest with Jesus. And what he writes is kind of a supplement to the other three Gospels. He includes some information that's not in those. And the text that we're reading today is part of that body of information. You won't find this in the other Gospels. It is part of a conversation he has with a group of Jewish people in Jerusalem during the time of one of their yearly festivals. And so if you'll follow along with me this morning, we are going to really just be talking about two verses this morning. And it's from John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. John chapter 8, 31 and 32. So to the Jews that had believed him, Jesus said, and I want you to notice right away who the direct audience is is, of course, he's talking to Israelites here as Jerusalem is filled with Israelites who had pilgrimaged from wherever it was that they resided to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of the Tabernacles. And as he's addressing this group of people, John talks about the fact that this group of people are Jews that had believed in him, to set them apart from the group of Jews who hadn't. We've talked about already in some of these passages how there were a group of Israelites, especially the leaders, who had already found themselves in opposition to Jesus. They don't like the attention he's getting. They don't like what he's doing. They don't like what he's teaching. And so they've already concluded, some of them, that he is such an enemy to them that they have hatched a plan to eventually try to put him to death. This group of people that he's addressing here, though, is not that group of people. They're different. They have believed in Jesus. And yet, what's remarkable is, as we'll find out, not really today, but as we go on over the next couple weeks, that even this group of people who had believed in Jesus is going to find themselves in opposition to him because of what he's about to teach them. And so he says to the Jews that had believed in him, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Getting at the heart of what real discipleship looks like. What does it really look like to be a follower of Jesus? And just in that statement, he's letting us know that there are those who may follow me that aren't really followers. If you want to really be one of my disciples, one of my followers, then this is what I'm asking of you, that you hold to my teaching. Now, this is from the NIV, and I usually preach from the NIV, but I've got that, that phrase highlighted here or italicized because I want to draw your attention to it. The NIV chooses to translate this in a way that I don't particularly 
love. And I'll explain to you why. If you read the NIV's translation, what is it Jesus is asking people to do if they really want to be one of his disciples? To hold to my teaching. The way that they choose to translate it here, I think, gives us the idea that this is primarily about a gathering of information. It's about what we know. As long as we can memorize and recite certain facts that we find in Scripture, then we can be confident in our possession of truth, right? That's what this is really about. Jesus just wants us to know stuff. And as long as we read the Bible and we know stuff, then automatically we can be confident of the fact that we are in possession of truth. Is that true? Is this primarily about what we know? Is that what Jesus is trying to get across here? That being a disciple is all about how much you know. And the reason I ask that question is because I think it's relevant for us today. I wish that all of us knew Scripture better than we did, than we do. I wish all of us spent more time in Scripture than we do. Illiteracy in Scripture is a problem for God's people because if we don't know His Word, then we don't know Him. And if we don't know Him, then we can't fully trust in Him. So don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not advocating for more ignorance when it comes to Scripture. I wish that we spent more time in Bible study. There's good reason for that. But is that really what's this, what this is about? Because that's what we usually do with this passage. Hey, study the Bible more. Don't you know what Jesus says in John chapter 8 and verse 31? Is this all about what we know? Information gathering. Is it about information or is it about relationship? So if you look at how the ESV translates this, this is much more consistent with how the word that's used here is translated other places in the gospel. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word. Now that word abiding conveys not so much the idea of information gathering, but it's a relational word. It automatically makes us think about where we are, where we stand, the place we find ourselves in. And this is all about a relationship with Jesus. Do we find ourselves in relationship with him? If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So what does that look like to abide in his word? Is it about obedience? Yes. Is it about more than that? Yes. It's about relationship. And I would remind you of this, to abide in his word I would remind you of how John starts his gospel. This is the very first verse. As John starts telling us the story of Jesus, he says this, In the beginning was, what? The Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He doesn't start off by saying in the beginning was Jesus. The title he uses to introduce Jesus to us is the Word. Jesus is the Word of God who, what does he say later on in that text? Took on flesh and dwelt among us. It's God incarnate, but what part of God? The Word of God. So just to say that, if we are going to abide in Jesus' Word, and Jesus is the Word, then it's the same as saying what? We're abiding in Jesus. So this is about relationship. In 1 John chapter 4, verses 12-15, through 15, John is again describing to us this idea that we can abide in God, that we can live in Him, in relationship with Him, and in that passage, he says, We have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. 
If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. This is what it looks like to abide in God and for God to return in return to abide in us. This mutual dwelling that we have where we live with God and God lives with us. How does that begin? And John says here it begins with the acknowledgement of one very simple truth. What is that truth? That the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. It begins with an acknowledgement of the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. So if we're going to abide in his word, we have to come to terms with the reality that he is who he said he was. You've got this group of people he's addressing who have come to some kind of belief in him, but they're not all the way there yet. And we know that's true because of how they react to his challenges here. I am the vine, he says in John chapter 15, and you are the branches. If you remain in me, if you abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, what can we do? Nothing. Nothing. This mutual abiding. So I just want to reassure you that as you think about what Jesus is asking us to do here, if you really want to be one of my followers, one of my disciples, abide in my Word. What does that mean? It doesn't mean just sticking your nose in this book all day long. That's part of abiding in his word, but it's more an invitation into a relationship with him. This is as much about an intimate relationship with Jesus as it is about an intimate knowledge of Scripture. And you have to have one to have the other. Why do we study the Bible? So that we can just know stuff? Why do we study Scripture? So that we can know him And through knowing him, have a relationship with him. And through knowing the Son, we get to know the Father. And we dwell with them and they dwell with us. The pursuit of understanding Scripture is is not an end unto itself. There's not going to be a pop quiz at the pearly gates. How much do you remember from Bible school? That's not what it's about. Do you abide in the Word? He is the Word. Do we abide in him? So think about this not just in, in informational terms, but in relational terms terms. So he goes on, back to our text. To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Okay, and then what? And then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You will know the truth. What does that mean to know truth? And what is truth to begin with? I would remind you of later on in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 18, So the Jewish authorities have arrested Jesus. They've decided that he is worthy and guilty of death. But there's a problem. They they can't carry out the death sentence without permission from Roman authorities. And so they go to Pilate, the Roman governor, and they're trying to seek his permission so that they can put him to death publicly. And Pilate, not really understanding what's going on, decides he needs to interview Jesus and find out more about him. And he begins asking him about his kingship. Are you really the king of the Jews? And a part of that conversation, picking up in verse 37, we read, You are a king then, said Pilate. And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to, here it is again, what? The truth. I came into the world to testify to the truth. I was born and came into the world to testify to the truth. And everyone on the side of truth does what? Listens to me. 
abides in my word. Sounds a lot like what we're reading about in John chapter 8, doesn't it? But then Pilate gives this famous retort. And I don't know if he's sarcastic or if he's honest, but the question he asks is relevant even today. What is his question? What is truth? What is truth? If we're going to have a discussion about truth, then I've got to invite you into a discussion this morning about the nature of truth itself. Because my truth might not be your truth, right? How do we arrive at a common place where truth can even be determined to begin with? And all of us are seeking out truth. Now, maybe you just came for the hamburgers today, but I'm assuming in your life is a pursuit of truth. And I think, basically speaking, there's two kinds of people. On one hand, you've got those people who they inherited a way of thinking about truth. They inherit it from their parents, and they're perfectly satisfied with it. They don't ask questions. Truth is just what I've always known to be truth. But then you've got those people who pursue truth endlessly in their lives. And they're never satisfied. They're always on the hunt for truth, willing to call into question everything they may have been given in order to determine what is really true. And why is it important to find out what truth is to begin with? Because unless we know what is true, we can't know what is good. We can't know what is right. We can't know what is worth pursuing in this life. And so this quest for truth is of utmost importance. And considering for a minute this morning what truth is, I think is worthy of our time. And so I'm going to invite you into a conversation about truth this morning. And in order to do that, I'm going to share two different articles with you. And it's funny because as I was preparing for this, I didn't seek these out. They just showed up in my Apple News feed. And the titles were intriguing. And so I read them and I thought, man, this is such a great way to think about how people perceive and pursue truth today. And so the first article comes from a publication called First Things. It's from this month's issue, written by an author named Luis Perry, and it's titled, We Are Repaganizing. And the article is really, she is looking at the national conversation taking place about birth control and abortion and, and you know, contentious issues like that as a window into how it is that paganism never really went away and how it's making a comeback. And it's a fascinating article. I would encourage you to read it. But that's not what I want to talk about, not that issue. It's this conversation we're having this morning about truth. And something she says here, I think, is worthy, worthy of reflecting on. So this is what she says. She says, He who believes in me promises Christ. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Members here, that should ring a bell because that comes from where? Chapter 8 that we just talked about a couple weeks ago. This is one of the things Jesus says during the Feast of Tabernacles. She goes on, water baptizes, gives life, quenches thirst, purifies filth, expunges flames, transforms things for the better. If Christianity is water, then it is an unstoppable force. It will run down and seep up no matter the impediment. But what if, she asks, Christianity is not water? What if instead we understand the Christian era as a clearing in a forest? The forest is paganism. Dark, wild, vigorous, and menacing, but also magical in its way. For 2,000 years, Christians pushed the forest back with burning and hacking, but also with pruning and cultivating, creating a garden in the clearing with a view upward to heaven. It's a beautiful description. She goes on. 
But watch. As roots outstretch themselves and new shoots spring up from the ground, the patch of sky recedes. Paganism has not needed to be reinvented, writes Stephen Smith. It never went away. In a certain sense, the Western world has arguably always remained more pagan than Christian. In some ways, Christianity has been more of a veneer than a substantial reality. And that's her claim here. That even though we are now 2,000 years into the Christian movement, that the majority of Christians are the kind of disciples that Jesus is addressing here in John chapter 8. They're just wearing a veneer, but beneath the veneer is what? Paganism is still alive and well. And if you remove the veneer and if you look past the skin-deep kind of discipleship, you find there people whose hearts have never truly been transformed. That's her contention here. And her, her conclusion about all of that is this. With no one left to tend the garden, the forest is reclaiming its ground. So beware, paganism is coming back. And we should be alarmed by that. Now let's pause for a second. I want to invite you to just think about something. This question, what is truth? Think about Christianity. We make tr claims about truth. We claim to be in possession of truth. Not a truth, but the truth. That what we preach about Jesus is the truth. That's what we claim. So if we're making claims about truth, what does that say about Christianity? Well, I think if you were to look at it, from an uninterested observer's perspective. In other words, I'm not a believer. I'm just looking at the phenomenon of Christianity. What is Christianity? Well, Christianity is first an idea or a set of ideas. And those ideas give way to a way of thinking about things. And that thinking gives birth to a philosophy. And the philosophy then paves the way for a movement. And Christianity certainly is a movement with considerable power and force behind it. But is that all Christianity is? I think for the author, the answer would be yes. This is what Christianity is. And before you say, oh, I'm being too critical, I think she admits as much. In a different spot in her article, she says this, I'm emotionally and intellectually drawn to Christianity. And like everyone else, I was raised in a culture suffused with fading Christian morality and symbolism. In other words, I like Christianity, but I don't believe. Not really. I don't believe. Not really. And so Christianity for her then I think could be boiled down to this. A, a movement built on a philosophy, built on an idea. But is that all it is? And my contention this morning is that that is not all it is. And the reason I don't think that's all there is to Christianity and our claims on truth is because I, unlike the author, am a believer. I believe. With all my heart and with all my soul, with all my being. I'm not doing this for the money. Shocker. I'm doing this because I believe, I really, truly believe in the claims that men like John made about Jesus of Nazareth. And because I believe, I would contend this, that Christianity is more than a movement built on the foundation of an idea. I would contend that Christianity is a kingdom built on the shoulders of its king, and that's very different than the way that this author thinks about and conceives of the Christian faith. 
When we proclaim the truthfulness of our ideas and our doctrines, when we say to our friends and our neighbors, hey, come to church with me, I'm back to church Sunday, because we believe that what we're teaching is true. When we make claims about the truthfulness of our own convictions, when we do that without first proclaiming the identity of our victorious king, if that is not all built on the foundation of Jesus as king, When we just say, hey, we've got an idea and our idea is true, instead of saying we've got a Savior and our Savior is true, when we do that, we're no longer preaching the kingdom of heaven. We're just espousing a philosophy and yet another philosophy, I would say. And if all Christianity is is a philosophy, a way of thinking, then it finds itself in competition with all these other philosophies and ways of thinking. And now it's in battle with other claims of truth. And if that's the way you conceive of your faith, people, then like the author, you end up being alarmed more than anything. And this is what I see among so many Christians today is alarmism. We're afraid. Paganism is coming back. We're losing the battle. And if we feel like we're losing something, then what do we do? Then we begin to fight. And we fight in ways that are unbecoming of our very calling. And so I would Proclaim to you boldly today that Christianity is much more than an idea and it's so much more than a philosophy. It is a kingdom built on the shoulders of a king. What we preach is true not because it makes more sense or is more appealing than any other competing claim of truth. In other words, you look at this author and what she writes. She admits, I like parts of Christianity but I'm not really a believer. And I think we recognize that about people today, that there's certain things that are appealing about Christianity, but there's certain things that aren't. And so to be more seeker-friendly, then what do we do? Well, we tend to hide away the things that aren't appealing and elevate the things that are. If we could just make the gospel sound better, if we could just make it more exciting, if we could make it more logical, then maybe the people we love will believe what we believe and share our convictions. But I think that might be a fool's errand. What we preach is true not because it makes more sense or is more appealing than any other competing claim of truth. Now here's another article. This one's from NPR. This is part of a series written by an author named Rachel Martin. This particular entry into the series is titled The Search for a Church That Isn't a Church. So in this series, she's exploring her own faith. She was raised in a Christian home. Her father did some preaching, and so she was raised with that faith, but she's not sure she shares it. And so she's being open and honest in this series that she explores what it is that she's really looking for in faith. And in this article, she's interviewing another author who published an article like hers that comes from a very similar background. Christian family, a dad who did some preaching, and is on a journey similar to hers. And so the article is an interview back and forth. And let me just share something with you from this. So as she's interviewing uh, the other person in this article, asking about their journey in faith, asking what are they looking for in a church? And this is what the person she's interviewing says. So if I could find a church and this may already exist, where the Sunday school is very low on the beliefs of Jesus and very high on the community part. That's what I'm looking for. Goes on. 
I'm guessing that if I went to 30 churches in Louisville, that's where they, they live, I could probably find a Sunday school like that that's focused less on Jesus rising from the dead and more about being compassionate, caring people. Let me pause for a second and just say how sad it is that in some people's mind, their experience with Christianity, with the church, is that these are somehow set in opposition to each other, that you can either have the resurrection or you can be kind, compassionate people. Why on earth would those be in opposition to each other? But that's been their experience. Since my piece ran, he's referencing an article that he wrote, I've been emailed by about 15 churches in Louisville saying, we're perfect for you. So now the interviewer, the author, interjects, and she says this, I'm sure, but do you think, though, to even loosely wear the identity of a cultural Christian, don't you need the resurrection part, or else it loses its backbone altogether? Man, that's a great question, isn't it? And I, I don't agree with the perspective of these authors, but I'm glad they're writing articles like this. Because it's asking questions and asking people to be honest with their own thought process and where they're at in their journey of faith. Okay, there's certain parts of church and Christianity I like, certain parts I'm uncomfortable with. Can I do away with one and still keep the other? Can I do away with the Jesus-y resurrection part and still have all the fun community part? And she asks a question. Haven't you removed the backbone of Christianity if you've done that? And here's his response. I have not thought through this part in great detail. This is also vexing me. And I'm so glad that it's vexing him. Because it should be troubling. Is that what we're left with in our pursuit of truth? Is just this idea that if we just take Christianity, make it more appealing, make it more logical to a modern mind, then we can win more people. Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 19. He says, But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Later on, he goes on to say in the same text, You of all people are the most to be pitied in the whole world, because you believed a fabrication. Either the resurrection is real and our faith is real, or the resurrection is a fabrication and so is your faith. Those are the two options. So to this man's question, or to the interviewer's question to this man, can you take away that part and have anything left? The answer from scripture is no. You're just left with an idea. And that's my whole contention this morning, that our faith is built on more than an idea. This isn't a philosophy we're espousing. This is a kingdom, and it has to have a resurrected Savior at the center of it, or there's nothing left of it. What we preach is true, not because it makes more sense or is more appealing than any other competing claim of truth. So to people like this, what do we do? Do we build a church that does away with the Jesus part so that they're more comfortable with what's left over? How can we? Because we've robbed the kingdom of its very reason for existence when we do that. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians in another place, in the first chapter. Listen to what he says. Jews demand signs. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. So this is what one group of people is looking for. This is what another group of people is looking for. But what we preach 
doesn't satisfy either one of those groups. It is a stumbling block to Jews, and it's foolishness to Gentiles. Some people want it to be more logical. A crucified and resurrected Savior is not logical. Some people want it to be more appealing, but a crucified and resurrected Savior isn't appealing to all people. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. There are those of us here that it is appealing and it does make sense, but why? Because God has called us to that. And so what do we do? We continue the call. He goes on in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, or 1 Corinthians, he says this, So it was with me, so now he makes it personal. He's going to reflect on his own ministry, his own preaching. And I don't know about you, but I have a very romantic notion of the apostles, and the Apostle Paul in particular. The Apostle Paul, we've got 13 epistles in the New Testament with his name on them. He wrote a, a, a huge bulk of what we have recorded for us in the New Testament. Our understanding of Christianity comes from the Apostle Paul and obviously the Spirit at work in him. But he's hugely influential. And so I like to imagine when I read the book of Acts, Paul going from city to city and preaching, I like to imagine the most dynamic, the most powerful, the most eloquent, the most witty public speaker you've ever heard. But Paul says, actually, that's not me at all. He says, and so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. In other words, Paul would not get hired in any modern American church. Because <laughs> this is what we're looking for, right? We want powerful preachers who are eloquent. That's what we want because our faith rests on that kind of thing too often. Paul knew that. And he wanted to build a faith in people that didn't rest on him. And so he says, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. What we proclaim to be true is not true because it makes more sense or is more appealing than any other claim on truth. My contention is that what we preach is true because Jesus of Nazareth was crucified, was raised from the dead, and is now seated at the right hand of God where he rules with all power and authority. This is the basic claim of every New Testament author. This is what they are trying to convince you of. A crucified and resurrected Son of God. To some people, it's appalling. To some people, it's appealing. To some people, it makes perfect sense. And to others, it's the dumbest thing they've ever heard. But what we preach is true because of that reality. Because of Jesus. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes this. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one 
to come. Paul didn't care about how appealing his message was or how logical his message was. He just cared about what he knew to be true. And he was bold in that proclamation of truth. So again, back to our passage. To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, if you abide in my word, you really are my disciples. And you will know the truth. How do we know what is true? By abiding in him. Is this primarily about what we know? And I would say no. It's primarily about who we know. Do we know Jesus? Do we know who Jesus is? Do we understand the claims being made about the identity of Jesus? And I think that's at the heart of the conflict that is brewing between him and these Jews who proclaim to have belief in him, that they believe in him but not all the way yet because his identity is still at stake. And we're going to see that come to light as we continue on in John chapter 8. Some claims he makes about himself makes even believers get angry. This is primarily about who we know. Truth is not an abstract idea that exists apart from Jesus. Jesus is truth. And his invitation is to abide in him so that truth can be revealed to us. It's about who we know. And then he says this, you will know the truth and what? What's the purpose in knowing the truth? Why even pursue truth to begin with? Because if you know the truth, the truth will do what? The truth will set us free. And my question is, free from what? And to find that out, you'll have to come back next week and join us. <laughs> Why did we invite you here today, visitors? Well, number one, we love you. Just the chance to be with you makes us happy. But number two, we really hope, our genuine desire is that you enjoy your time with us this morning. We hope you're moved by the worship. We hope you're challenged and encouraged by the passages we talked about this morning. Uh, we hope that you find us to be friendly and welcoming. We hope you enjoy the fellowship afterwards. But, but listen, if you walk out of here this afternoon and you say, you know, the worship style wasn't really my jam, and the preacher was boring and long-winded, and the burgers were a little overcooked, we're okay with all that, as long as, as long as you heard Jesus proclaimed here today. And I hope you did. And our invitation to you today is a simple one. If you are seeking after truth, and you feel like you haven't quite found it yet, would you give us the opportunity to share with you what we know to be true? and who we know to be true. We'd love to study with you more, and we would love it more than anything if you'd come back and join us next Sunday as we continue in our journey through the Gospel of John. We're going to sing one more song this morning, and I invite you to stand as we do that. Let's sing out together, and after that, we're going to be dismissed in prayer by one of our elders, and he'll give you some directions as to what else we got planned for you this morning. Would you stand and sing together? Jesus,